Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hello, thank you for joining me. Tuesday, February 7th. You have your popcorn ready to go. Tonight is the State of the Union address. President Biden is supposed to start speaking at 8 o'clock sharp. Pretty much uh, a lot of the mainstream media is streaming it. Uh, you can also uh, watch it on the major networks and on the cable networks. And, of course, my personal favorite, uh, C-SPAN, <laughs> will, of course, be there along with everybody else um, to see what President Biden has to say. He is supposed to be not only taking a victory lap, um, Jerome Powell said today that he thinks that um, we've gotten a handle on inflation. Uh, that uh, was uh, welcome news on Wall Street, where um, people have been kind of concerned about whether or not we're heading into a recession and how things are going to get worse. And it looks like Jerome Powell seems pretty satisfied that we are on the right course. I'm sure President Biden will talk about that. He's also going to talk about his cancer moonshot idea. He still wants to move forward on trying to put together the same kind of effort that got us to the moon to uh, work on cancer. You know, one thing that I, I think that is confusing about cancer, cancer is one word. We basically know what it means. Cells are somewhere in your body. Cells start dividing out of control and you're immune system doesn't step in and sweep them up and shut them down. But cancer, even though it is one word for one well-known process, cancers are a lot of different diseases. That's why it's really hard to come up with um, a magic bullet, a silver bullet, one treatment that's going to be effective for every cancer. You know, for a while, a few years back, we thought these drugs that could potentially cut off the blood supply to a tumor might be that silver bullet that would work with every tumor, but it turned out not to be as effective out of the lab as it was in laboratory conditions. Some people believe that figuring out how to beef up our immune systems might potentially be a magic bullet because, like I said, the theory, particularly, you know, Cancer is more prevalent as we get older. As we get older, our immune systems weaken. They sort of wane a little bit. And the thinking is, in some circles, that we produce cancer cells, aberrant cells, let's call them, our whole life long. But when we're younger and our immune system is more robust, our immune system steps right in and gets those cells out of our system before they can populate. So maybe if we strengthen the immune system, that would be the magic bullet. But that's why, depending upon the cancer you have, there's tons of different treatments. Some require surgery, some don't. Some um, are amenable to radiation, some aren't. Some uh, use chemotherapy, some don't. Um, immunotherapy, boosting the immune system, seems to be effective for certain cancers, but it's not necessarily a treatment across the board, at least not yet. So that's why it's so hard 
You know, when we were looking at a way to get HIV under control, it was one thing. You know, it was one thing. There it is. This is what it looks like. This is what it does. Cancer isn't one thing. It's a lot of different things that work a lot of different ways. So I think trying to put together experts and money and fund a cancer moonshot is a great idea. If nothing else, I guarantee you that it will come up with new treatments. And and when you're diagnosed with cancer, that's the first question. What do we do? What are the treatments? What are my options? Am I going to live? What are the odds? So um, President Biden is expected to um, keep things upbeat. Here, I thought this was funny. (laughs) This is what the New York Times had had to say about it today. The primetime State of the Union address is a key opportunity for the president to lay out his agenda before Congress and the nation. Even as partisanship deepens in Washington, he is expected to reiterate a message of unity and present himself as the adult in the room. (laughs) Well, with what we've seen of Kevin McCarthy's Congress, being the adult in the room, that's a good thing. (laughs) That's a good thing. Oh, my goodness. Oh, Kevin McCarthy also put out a note to his Republican members of Congress. Oh, my God. Somebody likened this um, to talking to first graders. Uh, He sent out a note saying, now, remember, um, there will be lots of microphones in the room. And if you're chatting with somebody, you know, there it will be picked up. And also remember, you know, if you're on your phone, there will be lots of cameras and reporters will be able to see what you're looking at on your phone. So let's remember this. okay? let's remember this. What do you think George Santos is going to do tonight? Hmm. (laughs) I don't know. Anyway, um, let's go to the phone lines. Jim from Chicago is calling in already. Hey, Jim, how are you today? Hi, Joan. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. I I was going to say that uh, the betting odds on Friday where Trump was a prohibitive favorite, I mean a heavy favorite, to win the Republican nomination, and Biden would beat him handily in a heads-up election. Now, since that, all I've heard is people aren't satisfied with the economy, and his age, uh, Trump's, I mean, Biden's age, they're concerned with Biden's age. Well, here's the point. Trump is no spring chicken either. And I think if Biden, for my money, Biden is everywhere. His wife is everywhere. This looks like an all-star lineup tonight. They're going to have Pelosi's husband. They're going to have a kid from our neck of the woods, an apprentice. It sounds like just an all-star lineup for this speech. And I think what I remember back maybe a few months ago, he was going to announce by the 10th whether he was running or not. And I just hope and pray that he runs. And uh, I don't know about Trump's legal jeopardy, but... They say that he's a prohibitive favorite to win that uh, nomination. So they, And I think everybody knows that. The media knows that. And I think it's in their interest to gum up the works a little bit so they get a little bit more uh, 
uh, eyeballs and listening to different programs. Anyway, Joan, you have Well, you know, it's interesting. It's, no. it's interesting that you say that because, you know, I'm reading so much, oh, you know, Trump's time has come and gone and he doesn't have the donor support. I mean, I think it was just yesterday the Koch brother fortune, um, the Koch family said that they were going to put their money behind somebody else. But Charlie Sykes, the con- former conservative radio talk show host from Wisconsin, who now regularly appears with Nicole Wallace on MSNBC, just last week, Charlie Sykes was saying, yeah, everybody's saying this. Everybody's saying he's damaged. He's going to fade away. He's going to, is you know, he's not going to get any traction, blah, blah, blah. But he said, do not count Donald Trump out. He said, these people who are saying that he's out of the picture, he said a lot of that right now is wishful thinking. And if Trump comes on strong, if DeSantis doesn't enter the race, or if he does and Trump savages him, Charlie Sykes said, do not think that Trump can't pull this out again. Do not think that you think that at your peril. So, yeah. What you're saying makes a lot of sense, Jim. Anyway, great show today, Joan. Glad to have you back. Take care. Thank you. Glad to be back. So we've got the State of the Union address. And um, as you know, I usually stick to uh, politics and culture, that kind of thing. But I uh, have to acknowledge that... What the fallout from the earthquake in in Turkey? More than seven thousand people dead, according to the New York Times. Rescuers are still trying to pull people out of the rubble, and occasionally they are lucky and they do pull somebody out who is still alive. But there, the New York Times right now in their latest update is calling it 7,100, 7,100 people dead. I mean, this disaster is apocalyptic. Um, There is other international news. I'm going to talk a little bit. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to have Professor William Muck join us. He's Remember, he's a political science professor, but he specializes in international stuff. So we are going to talk to him about the spy balloon. The spy balloon. Right after this. WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. Don't turn that dial. A dangerous mistake to make. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. We recently shot down a Chinese balloon. We're calling it a Chinese spy balloon. We waited until it was out over the water. We shot it down. Recovery from by the Navy and the Coast Guard is now taking place there are reports that this morning two boats, I guess they must have been side by side, were carrying the actual deflated balloon portion. Uh, this thing wasn't wasn't it wasn't like we could just send a cargo plane up there and capture it in the in a in the cargo space. This was 200 feet tall. It weighed about 2,000 pounds. It is taking two ships, 
side by side to bring in the deflated balloon part. The Chinese acknowledge that it was theirs. They say it was a weather balloon. They say the United States overreacted by shooting it down. And oh, by the way, yeah, we have one uh, that is flying over Latin America right now, too. uh, The Chinese have admitted what is going on. And there's especially a lot of questions about how often this has taken place and whether or not we are prepared to detect them. There's so much going on here. I asked one of our favorite people in the whole world, uh, Professor William Muck, to join us. Uh, He's with uh, North Central College, and uh, he's a professor of political science with an international expertise. So if anybody knows about balloons flying all over the world, hopefully it's him. William, thank you so much for being here. Hey, Joan, it's always a pleasure to be here, and especially to talk about spy balloons. Spy balloons. Okay, (laughs) let's back way up. First and foremost, why on earth, if you wanted to spy over a country, would you use a balloon? I mean, don't I mean, the Chinese are supposed to be almost as militarily technically advanced as we are. Wouldn't you have like a super spy plane that could fly over at 10 miles above the earth and get you know the kind of military information you need? But no. Hey, I've got an idea, folks. Let's send balloons. It is it is really comical. The whole thing is I mean it's it's very serious, it's really fascinating, but there's also sort of a, a bizarre element to this. And and you're absolutely right. So China is 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 one of the best at spying. And they do it in a variety of ways. I mean, there are satellites up there uh that do fantastic imagery and they get a ton of information from there. Uh China is arguably the leading hacking world power and they get tons of information that way, uh you know, through cyber attacks and whatnot. Uh, and I think this is just one of the the extra ways that they do this, but it is not particularly stealthy. Um, and I think as, as we've seen it, it sort of seems absurd in how it played out. But apparently there is some value in gathering information this way. But in the grand scheme of things, in terms of like the strategic threat, you know, on a scale of one to ten, is it not important or really important? This is kind of a two. Um, and that's what's really fascinating about it is like the whole political system domestically and internationally blew up because of, of this, this sort of somewhat non story but i get it that's what makes it so interesting you know um i nobody has at least that i've read has come out and said this directly but the pentagon has said um because you know of course republicans you know especially with the state of the union you know they got to find something to complain about and it's like oh as soon as you found it you should have shot it down well of course the government the 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 military said you know no this is bound to hurt people on the ground you know, there are, there's going to be some big pieces that fall off, but they've implied that somehow they were jamming it because they, they've said very, you know, sort of tongue in cheek, don't worry, it wasn't sending any information um, as we watched it. So do you think that means they were like jamming its signal somehow? It's it's a great question. I am sure there are there is some technique or something that the U.S. government was doing to prevent it, or at minimum to make it more difficult uh, to to send information back. And it's it's beyond me to kind of know how they do that. I think the the best guess is that the Chinese maybe were trying to gather information on you know ICBM sites, so the intercontinental ballistic missiles. Well, yeah, uh, that's it was one over, they were theory. Over, when we first found out, it was over Montana. Isn't that where we supposedly? It, uh, have our missiles. 
Exactly. And there are a lot of them spread out there. So it is possible that uh, the spy balloon was trying to gather information in, in that uh, that area of the country. But it, it's also entirely possible and, and maybe likely that this was a screw up. And we tend to think with international politics that everything is intentional, that some country is up to some nefarious tactics. Uh, I think it is it is a high probability that somebody in the Chinese government screwed up uh, and it wasn't in, supposed to go over the continental United States. It was maybe supposed to skirt the borders or something because this turned into a major issue that China did not want to occur. So so I think we have to reserve the, the possibility that this was just somebody screwed up and now we're having to deal with the fallout from all of it. Well, I did read that China admitted that while it was a weather balloon, no, nothing to look at, just a weather balloon, that there were what they described as limited controls. What that means um, for a balloon this size, we can kind of control it in a limited way. There was also, when it was first detected, I don't know if, if any of these news reports panned out, but some people were wondering if the reason that it was detected was that something had gone wrong with those limited controls. And either, as you say, it was flying somewhere it shouldn't have flown, or that perhaps it had changed altitude in a way it shouldn't have done to make it kind of more visible to us. Um, but limited control, what does that mean? Oh, this is this is right. And so this it raises this really interesting question of why China would do this. And and so one explanation is somebody screwed up, right? They made some mistakes. The controls broke or something where it floated, because if you want to have a good spy balloon, you don't just let it randomly float across a country <laughs> where people can see it. Right. It's, so the other interpretation might be that China was intending to uh, to test the United States. And that's another theory that's been out there, that they wanted to see how the United States responds. Now, it's an interesting theory, but the broader context of what's been going Going on between the United States and China over the last month or so has been an attempt to de-escalate, to turn the temperature down a little bit because it's been such a tense relationship over the last few years. So it strikes me that it would be unlikely that when China, at least the upper levels of China, are trying to reduce tensions, that they would do something that they would know would be so provocative, right? So, so it's it's also possible that a hardliner within the Chinese government did this. I'm still resting on somebody somewhere screwed up and didn't get the memo hmm. so you don't think you know because a lot of i've been reading a lot about uh, what's going on with taiwan um last friday i think it was friday or saturday in the wall street journal i think it was a book excerpt that went on for several pages talking about how china might think the way like in world war ii the way japan and germany thought China might think that the U.S. has a lot going on. They're distracted. You know, if we go after Taiwan, they're not going to they're not going to want to get involved. And the whole point of this book excerpt was if that is what China is thinking right now, they should take some lessons from the past, because when countries have thought that before about the United States, they have always ended up losing big. You mentioned something a couple of minutes ago that this might have been a test I mean, it seems like a kind of a silly one, but do you think that every once in a while a country just sort of pokes another country just to see what they'll do? 
Oh, absolutely right. And it's it's trying to understand the type of poke and then how that country responds. And and I think if we step back and look at what's playing out uh, in in the South China Sea, the United States and China are poking each other constantly. Uh, so China, you know, which is is sort of expanding its footprint in that area, uh, you know, building islands, sort of expanding its 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 control, is testing to see how will the United States respond. And oftentimes, it's you know in air in the we're talking about fighter ships where they'll bring their planes close to U.S. planes or in, you know, in terms of naval operations where they'll they'll get a little closer to the United States to see how the other side responds. And and it's really a, a grand game, a chess game that's playing out right now between the United States and China. Uh, and, and last week, we saw the United States announce that it was expanding the number of military sites in the Philippines uh, from basically five mm-hmm. to nine. Um, that was, I, th- I think we can understand that as part of this game where the United States is saying, we're here. Um, and then then China responds. And it's possible that the spy balloon was was part of that. I think less likely, but but certainly there are all of these activities going back and forth where each side is sort of testing to see how the other is going to respond. I have so much more that I want to talk to you about. We need to take a break. But when we come back from the break, one of the things uh, before we move to the greater story of just the United States and China about this spy balloon the Pentagon and NORAD coming out and say, gosh, we never saw it. You know, if it hadn't been for the intelligence community, we wouldn't have known it was there. I want to talk to you about that sort of uh, strangeness. And we're also learning that were there were at least three balloons during the Trump administration that were never acknowledged and nobody ever did anything about them. I'm going to continue this discussion about the spy balloon till we get to the bottom of it with Professor William Muck. We'll be back after this. Did you know you can text Joan at the same number you used to call us? 773-763-9278. Thanks to our texting sponsor, Camp Kupugani. Register today at multiculturalcamp.com. Text away. 773-763-9278. This is Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. North Central College political science professor William Muck joins us. We are talking about the spy balloon. And something that I thought was really interesting was that the head of NORAD and spokesperson for the Pentagon said, gosh, we didn't uh, we didn't spot this thing. If it hadn't been for the intelligence community, we wouldn't have known it was there now. Um, now, the intelligence community, I don't know whether they meant NSA, CIA or some other alphabet group, but does that say to you that the reason we knew this was there be, it was because of uh, human intelligence, like somebody told somebody rather than the I don't I don't know that the NSA or CIA have their own satellite network or would have detected it that way. But is is that what they're talking about? Is that that some sort of um, a spy network came through and said, hey, buddy, you better look for a balloon. How do you interpret <laughs> that? Sounds- Yes, along those lines, right? So somebody, we, we realize that the government is made up of different entities, all of which are gathering their own information. And so at some point, somebody or some element of the U.S. government realized it was there and then started telling others to say, hey, this is a big deal. And it speaks to how the United States understands threat and what it's looking for. Um, and I think prior to a couple of years ago, they really, or even up to now, they weren't looking for this type of threat. Um, you know, again, most of our effort to 
counter China really is on the cyber front. That's where most of the, the information, the intelligence, like that's where China devotes a lot of its time. And that's where the United States spends a lot of money and time and effort to counter the Chinese threat. But it, it's pretty clear that up until this point, we weren't really thinking about the threat posed by spy balloons. And, and it's an interesting question because I, at the end of the day, I'm not sure how much of a threat the spy balloon really is. Um, you can go back, you know, during the Cold War and even with Russia, the United States allowed overflights. You know, we said to our enemy, you can fly over us, we'll fly over you as a way of gathering intelligence, and, and we'll accept that as part of the process, right? It's, it, it creates some sense of transparency and what everybody's up to. So in the grand scheme of things, like, I don't think the spy balloon is the threat that our domestic political system made it out to be, right? Which sort of, again, all of that is interesting about how we gather information, who has that information within the government, who's talking to whom about it, right? It was very revealing this last week about how our government works in all all aspects. There was um, reporting that there were three balloons that flew over the country during the Trump administration. Uh, Donald Trump and his uh, senior people say, gosh, we didn't know anything about that. Um, I know that during the Trump administration, there was resistance within the government. Um, People didn't want to share information, particularly with the president, since he didn't seem to understand what should be kept secret and what should be shared with, you know, Putin or Saudi Arabia. Do you think the intelligence community knew about those balloons? Is it possible that they knew about those balloons, which somebody must, because now we're we're saying there were three of them. So somebody knew something. And do you think it was just a lack of communication or do you think it's possible that they didn't know who to trust in the Trump administration and didn't say anything? It's 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 hard to know for sure, but my guess is it sounds like uh, they didn't discover the spy balloons until well after they had they had been out, uh, and and so maybe it comes down to looking at different intelligence, different satellite data. So in the moment they were not detected, and it sounds like that information was not passed up uh, to the upper level. So Donald Trump and the Secretary of Defense never heard about this, um, and it wasn't until much later, uh, looking back at some of this data, that they realized this had occurred. And again, that's that's important, right? It, it means that in the moment they weren't able to respond. And as time has gone by, the intelligence units have gotten better at detecting that and probably also assessing how big of a threat this is. At the end of the day, I think the the reason this got so much of attention is like it felt intrusive, right? It's one thing if a spa- satellite is is spying down on you. It's another thing if Americans can see a balloon, you know, a balloon where, you know, the it's it's massive, you know, where they talked about three different buses size of it. Um that feels like an intrusion. And when that happens, the political system has to respond. Uh, and so I think more than anything, it was the optics of it that caused all of the reaction, not necessarily the national security threat that it posed. Hmm. It just it's just one of the weirdest stories uh, uh, in recent memory. This long form article that I read in Saturday's Wall Street Journal, which, again, is I I believe it's an excerpt from a book. And uh, sadly, I don't remember the name of the book. But one of the things that they said is, you know, when you look at Japan right before World War Two and Germany before World War Two or World War One, that. When nations start to arise in power, 
and influence that the way the author put it, that that the leaders somehow get this idea that if their territory is not allowed to expand, if their countries are not allowed to grow, that somehow they will die. It's like grow. They get this grow or die mentality. So that when a country like the United States says, you know, leave your grubby hands off of Taiwan, they don't just see that as the political statement that it is. But this the United States doesn't want us to grow. Therefore, they want us to die. Therefore, we have to do something. I, I'm not sure I fully understood. Do you do you understand that whole grow or die thought process? Do you agree with it? Yeah, I don't necessarily agree with all of it, but what I would say and what's really important is as as states, as countries become more powerful, they want to exert that power. And it's it's throughout all of history we've seen this. When when countries rise and they become bigger and bigger, they want more domestic influence, they want more global influence, and they want to show and demonstrate their power. Um, there's, you know, going all the way back to Thucydides, there's this famous line where he says, the strong do what they will and the weak accept what they must. And so what I think we're seeing is China is growing, they're expanding, they're becoming more powerful, and they want more say in the global system, and they don't want another power dictating to them. So when they look at Taiwan, or when they look at the South China Sea, they say, this is our backyard, and we don't like the idea that the United States is operating in our backyard, and now we're a big player, we're stronger, uh, and so we're going to exert that influence. And so what's happening, and how we can understand the U.S.-China relationship is it's one one power, like the United States, the existing global hegemon, is now trying to deal with another emerging power. Uh, we're in the early stages of a Cold War, and they're figuring out how to interact with each other. And, and again, part of what we've witnessed over the last few years is growing tensions, mistrust. Uh, I think we've seen a, a more nationalistic rhetoric out of China. Um, as, as you get more powerful, it becomes more difficult to deal with those other powerful actors. So, so China is looking at Taiwan and saying, this is ours, and, and seeing the United States as, as a problem all of there, which, which again means that moving forward, there's, it's much more likely that there could be an incident either in Taiwan or in the South China Sea more broadly. This may be um, terribly naive on my part, but, you know, um, from what I've read, that after China took over Hong Kong, um, they sort of felt that Taiwan would just fall into place. Like, oh, I see what you did with Hong Kong there. So, you know, hey, I'm not going to fight you here. But and I think the weird thing is something like that potentially could have happened if China had taken over Hong Kong and let it continue to do business and to have a government the way it had had under British dominion. Then I think Taiwan would look at that and say, well, you know, they left Hong Kong alone. Uh, we've got nothing to fear from them. So, you know, whether we're our own country or part of them, it's it's not that big a deal. But they didn't. They went into Hong Kong. You know, anybody, dissidents started disappearing. People who owned bookstores started disappearing. All these crackdowns. I mean, how do they expect Taiwan to look to the, look at that and say, yeah, that's for me. I want a part of that, too. I mean, don't you is it just not something that they were capable of to leave Hong Kong alone? 
This is this is really good analysis, uh, Joan. You're you absolutely so. As we watch what happened in Hong Kong, uh, China increasingly exerted its control over the political system, and as that happened, the democratic elements of Hong Kong simply have melted away. Uh, and if you look at its democracy score, it's plummeting. Taiwan, by contrast, is is the one of one of those amazing stories in terms of a functioning democracy that is getting better and more democratic. In the past, you and I have talked about my my major concern about the collapse of democracy democracy around the world. Taiwan is one of the few bright spots. It is doing amazingly well. And there's no question that they're looking at what happened in Taiwan, I'm sorry, in Hong Kong and saying we don't want that to happen here. And it puts the United States in a really really difficult position because Joe Biden has talked at length about how important democracy is. Uh, the war in Ukraine is really about defending democracy mm-hmm. against authoritarianism. And now you've got Taiwan on his plate where he's got to think about how committed am I to the democracy in Taiwan, because that democracy is really, really valuable. The question is, is it worth, uh, you know, risking war with China over it? Right. This is why, you know, I think the South China Sea and Taiwan in particular are they're one of the hottest issues over the next five to 10 years in, in international politics. Yeah, we need to take a break. And I want to talk to you more about that, because I've been reading there is at least a couple of people who think that it is. I don't want to say very likely, maybe, maybe possible, maybe probable that China will make a move against Taiwan in 2024. I'm talking with Professor William Muck from North Central College. He is a political science professor, and we are going to be back with more right after this. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. Professor William Muck and I are talking about China. Before I ask you my question, um, we've got a call from Dave from Hoffman Estates who wants to join our conversation. Go ahead, Dave. You're on with me and Professor Muck. Hey, Joan. Hey, Professor. What about all the times that those, uh, the Chinese had threatened either our ships or, or the jets if they got too close to that man-made island they got in the South China Sea that they figured that that's a military base itself? More than once they sent out warnings that you know they were gonna, you know, fire upon them. Mm. Or in Taiwan, as you speak, that about a year, year and a half ago they. They had buzzed a whole bunch of sorties, like about 24 sorties over it, to be kind of provocative that time, they thought. Yeah, well, that may have been when Nancy Pelosi uh, visited Taiwan, because there was a lot of saber-rattling then. Professor, you want to jump in? Yeah, this is a really important question that Dave is raising. So what China has done throughout the South China Sea is they have made islands, you know, basically through the process of dredging. They've created islands that, that can serve a military purpose. And once they do that, then they argue, they bring out international law and say that we have uh, 12 miles of territorial sea around this. We have a 200-mile exclusive economic zone in the water, and we, we control the air rights. Now, other countries in that region have said this is outrageous, and it's 
against international law. But the only country that is strong enough to push back against that is the United States. And so what we've seen is China builds these islands and they say nobody can come within 12 miles or 200 miles. And then the United States will bring its naval ships right across there, challenging that to say, no, China, you don't have the ability. It's against international law to create islands and then exert sovereign control over them. So we see the way in which there's all sorts of likelihood of some sort of incident out in the South China Sea, where I think the United States is doing the right thing by challenging China to say, no, you can't simply create islands and argue that this is your territory. But it leaves it to the United States as the only global actor who can really push back against China's expanding power. Yeah. Thanks, yeah, Dave. All right. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, then there's that other, in that area, that island where China and Japan keep fighting over saying that it's their their territory. <laughs> I yeah. can't think of the island's name right now, but uh, perhaps Professor could, uh, you know... Uh, yeah, this is the island where uh, both countries have ships go by and usually an individual jumps off and puts a Chinese flag on it. And then when that happens, then a Japanese boat by and sticks a Japanese flag on it. Right. I mean, we see this sort of ongoing tensions between uh, both China and Japan, but also the United States getting involved in those conversations. So the it is it is a tense space where there there's the prospect of some sort of incident igniting this. Right. I, mean, I think that's why the spy balloon got so much attention is it it, it showed that uh, something as small as this can can create a really international issue. And it also revealed how the U.S. domestic system, I mean, we saw how Republicans basically lost their mind. You know, you had J.D. Vance uh, tweeting out pictures of himself pointing the gun up in the air. Um, you know, so and you see Light. the way in which... To- Yes, yes. Domestic power. Mike Pompeo was another one. So we saw both the international dynamic, but we also saw how uh, the Republicans will play politics with international issues and put a lot of pressure on Joe Biden to be tough, right, to to be to push back against China. Right. So there's this there's sort of a similar dynamic to what we saw during the Cold War and, you know, being tough on China is like being tough on the Soviet Union. Yeah. Um, Thanks, Dave. Thanks for the call. Um, I wanted to um, talk a little bit more about this from a a different angle. I was reading a couple of, um, I don't know if they were professors or or what. They weren't my usual political pundits, Um, but they were saying, look, folks, um, there's a very real possibility, a very real possibility that uh, China will invade Taiwan and that it will be in 2024 or early 2025, and the thinking being that um, we will be very distracted with a presidential election. We will probably still be supporting Ukraine, so maybe the appetite for being involved on two different fronts will not be very strong. And if you're going to do it, man, that is the prime time. And both of these people, I thought what caught my interest was that it was two different people basically writing the same thing as like, watch out, don't take your eye off this particular ball, because 2024 could be the time when they actually make a move. What do you think about that? 
It's certainly a possibility. Uh, and I think that's why the Biden administration has been paying so much attention uh, to China. So I think we've seen, especially from the Secretary of State, you know, they can they can walk and chew gum at the same time. So they can talk and address Ukraine, but also think very, very strategically and aggressively about China. Uh, and so I, I, there is certainly a possibility. Now, and the other question is, what would an invasion look like? Would China actually go to war and, and you know, bring the ships and the tanks? Uh, I think it's maybe more likely what that what they would do is a blockade so that they would put ships around Taiwan and prevent any goods and services from coming in and out of, of Taiwan. Um, it, you know, probably within two weeks, that would devastate the, the Taiwanese economy and they would be running out of you know gasoline and goods and services. So that might be as effective as an all out invasion. So so there's a couple different ways that they can do so. I think one one re- one thing that's giving China a little bit of pause is the Ukraine war and the way in which the Biden administration has been able to coalesce so much of the international community against Russia to turn Russia a pariah state. And China is a very pragmatic international actor. And so they are likely weighing the costs and benefits of a move against Taiwan. And what would that do to their economy? What would it do to the international reputation? So while I think you're absolutely right, that there is a chance that this happens in the next two years. I don't think anything is inevitable. And I think that, you know, we need to closely watch how these two actors, the United States and China, interact over the next, you know, six months to a year to kind of get a a better sense of whether that is more or less likely. Hmm. We have another caller. Uh, Sal's calling in from McKinley Park to join our conversation. Hey, Sal, thanks for uh, calling in today. You're on with me and Professor William Mock. Go ahead. Oh, thank you, John. I just want to... uh uh, tap the brakes a little bit on the idea of countries as sole actors. In other words, we talk about China and the United States as if they're a monolith. And, you know, I, I know that, for example, when Vietnam was, uh, Northern Vietnam was uh, fighting against the United States, they were very clear in their pronouncements that their argument wasn't with the United States people. And, I I kind of uh, long for the United States to kind of take that position uh, vis-a-vis the rest of the world as well, you know. So we tend to really get over our skis when we talk about geopolitical conflicts. And, you know, the professor is kind of indicating that it's a coming Cold War and so on. But we're so tied to the Chinese economically, you know, with trade and so on and our prosperity. Yeah, but, you know, the only thing, Sal, that you're saying that, you know, people used to say that about Russia, you know, oh, we're so, you know, we're buying their their natural gas and their oil and we're so globally, uh, economically interdependent that Russia will never basically be an invader. They won't make war again because they have too much to lose. And yet, and yet, that did not seem to be the deterrent that somebody like Angela Merkel used to talk about it being. Uh, Professor, would you weigh in here? Yeah, I think, you know, Sal makes an important point, right, that that one of the biggest deterrents to conflict is economic interdependence. The more intertwined states are economically, the the heavier the costs are if they go to war. But what we've seen between the United States and China over the last couple of years is is a decoupling. Now, there still is lots of trade that goes back and forth between the two countries, but it's less than it used to be. And the United States and the Biden administration has been strategic about saying there are certain industries, uh, specifically as we think about technology 
technology and semiconductors that we are going to pull away from China. We're not going to share that technology with them. So, so yes, you know, I, I think economic interdependence is a really important uh, dynamic to decrease the likelihood of war. But yet we've seen some some disconnect between those two countries in terms of removing, becoming less globalized, less interdependent. And as that happens, I think it increases the likelihood of war. And then the other thing I would say is that we've seen nationalism in both countries increase. So, you know, in the United States, we're seeing more hawkish views on China. And the same thing is happening in China. So it doesn't mean that war is inevitable. I don't think that's the case. But it means that we need to be careful as we start thinking about how these two states interact with each other. Well, one thing that I did make note of. uh, Thanks, Sal. Thanks for the call. Um, Apple announced that um, I don't know that they're that they're in a position where they're going to close down any factories in China. But I do know that they moved production of something or other, some part for some computer or phone that was done in China. They're now moving to Vietnam. Um, I think that a lot of especially during covid, don't you think it's been a big wake up call for a lot of companies that maybe these global supply chains, they may be economical, but they may not be reliable. That is absolutely right. And, and what the market doesn't like is instability. And so when they look at something like COVID and then they look at how China responded to COVID and the ways in which that slowed down the global economy, they're looking for other alternatives to say, you know, we want to use China, but we also want to have, we want to diversify. So we're not entirely dependent upon one country. And so, so yeah, there's a lot that's happening within China as well as it, as it grows and it's developed, as it is economy shifts. And so, you know, it is managing. And, and I think one thing that Sal brought up that's important is that there's there's a lot going on within China, right? It is a complicated place with a variety of different political views that aren't always expressed. Like, it is difficult to manage a big country like China. So it, it's hard to know where it's going to be in five or ten years because there's so much potential for change there as well. You know, the um, Washington Post in talking about, well... First of all, people just can't seem to take this whole spy balloon thing seriously. They did a big article, four things that pop from the Chinese balloon incident. Uh, But one (laughs) of the points that they made about this was that it shouldn't really change, you know, the way you think uh, about China and the relationship. And uh, they said something to the effect that um, if you think that this... In a balloon is somehow some major wake up call about Chinese actions, abilities or intentions. It may just mean that you have been asleep. And I don't think our government is asleep. So this spy balloon may have all of us, you know, either worrying or laughing or or doing both simultaneously. But do you think it will actually do anything to change our policies? I don't think it'll change policies in the long term. In the short term, so the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, he canceled his trip. And that's a big deal because uh, this was going to be a big meeting between the United States and China where they were going to talk about lowering the temperature. And I think that's a really important thing. Uh, They will still have that meeting. You know, they'll probably have it a few months from now. Uh, So I think long term, I think it doesn't change a lot. But in, in the short term, it does. Right. So China had to come out and condemn the United States shooting down the balloon. The United States has to criticize China. You know, the whole thing forced an uncomfortable incident. uh, And one hopes that you can get through all of this and then get back to the dialogue, get back to the diplomacy where there can be real conversations about how do we avoid 
this again. So the whole point of, of Blinken going over to China was to avoid a spy balloon type of incident, right? Something that happens and then spirals out of control. So I think it's more evidence of the need for that kind of diplomacy and avoiding escalating these incidents again. All righty. Um, one last thing that I wanted to share with you, you know, it may make us more aware than ever before that we have to bridge this information gap, this die. We have to create more dialogue with China. But it just seems to have provided another reason for the crazies in our country to separate away. Um, Congressman Joe Wilson uh, tweeted this out about, I don't know, four or five days ago. The catastrophic Chinese spy balloon spectacle clearly threatened American families from Alaska to my home community in South Carolina and confirms President Biden and Vice President Harris should resign. So let's get some dialogue going there. William, what do you say? Yeah, no, that, that, that's ridiculous, right? And I think that a lot of the Republican reaction was purely partisan and ridiculous. It used to be that we argued that politics stopped at the water's edge. And this was a really good int- example to see how the, the U.S. partisan polarized system could handle a, a minor international incident. I think what we saw is it is not ready for handling that type of incident. You had Republicans, you know, pointing their guns up in the air, saying the president should requ- re- re- resign. McCarthy was saying that Biden is weak. I mean, it revealed the way in which our domestic politics is not very serious when it comes to international incidents. So, yeah, it, it, it was that's ridiculous. <laughs> Professor Mock, thank you so much, so much for joining us today. I love talking with you. It's always interesting, informative and fun. I enjoy it, too. Thanks so much, Joan. We are going to take a break for news. We're going to be with David Orr from Good Government, Illinois, when we come back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. David Orr joins us. He is with Good Government Illinois. And uh, they have started something new. When we talked to David last time, it was just about to launch. It has launched now. Good Government Illinois has a podcast. David, how are you? How are you doing today? I am fine. And you? Um, I am doing remarkably well. You know, okay. I'm old, David, so I go to the doctor a lot. And uh, I went to the doctor today, and things went really well. So, you know, at, in my life, David, that's about as good as it gets. Well, unfortunately, I, I'm in a similar situation. I'm pretty old, too, and, yeah, there's all sorts of things you got to keep checking up on. So, yeah, when we, can, when we can be doing okay and hopefully contribute something, then that's a good, that's a good day. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of contributing, uh, tell us about this new podcast and who you've been talking to. Well, we um, our first thing we experimented, of course, but our first podcast officially was with Jan Schakowsky back in November. I need to look up all these old things, by the way, um, because we wanted to get a take on what it meant when the Republicans co- took over the House by a small margin. Um, and then we've been doing what we call the municipal series, and that relating, of course, to the coming elections. And we had uh, one of the very experienced, talented aldermen, Alderman Scott Waggis, back. And then we had one of the freshmen, probably one of the most talented freshmen, Marie Haddon from 49. And then we had Dick Simpson. And uh, people don't remember, Dick Simpson not only was an alderman way back, um, he served, let's see, that was from 71 to 79. 
But Dick has also written many, many books and articles, including several books that highlighted, unfortunately, what looked like the most corrupt um, political place in a country in Chicago and Cook County. Um, so, yeah, the three of them, it's a lot of fun. Um, I'm older, so I'm not that experienced in podcasts. Um, but, we'll see. <laughs> but you know how to talk, right? That's pretty I, much all I, you got to do, do, right? That's with the best of them, yeah. So, um, so, yeah, it's a lot of fun. And, and again, the nice thing about this is you, you can pretty get some pretty talented people, which mm-hmm. is half the battle. Um, and these are all talented well, with a lot to say. February 28th, uh, there are at least uh, 15 aldermanic seats that are up for grab, either because somebody moved on to higher office or they're running for mayor or they're retired. Um, when you you say you focused kind of on what's going on in the municipal elections, any um, feel, which of the aldermanic races do you think are uh, the most interesting? Oh, wow. <laughs> I know. Um, I've been talking to a lot of the candidates and, um, you know, some of them where uh, somebody is retiring, you know, Harry Osterman's retiring. And in some of these races, there's as few as five or six. In other races, there are, are 10 or more people who've decided that this older job looks pretty good to them. And, you know, um, they're going to see uh, if they can if they can snag it. Yeah, well, one of the keys in my book here is because I often remind people when we keep talking about the city council, et cetera, is, is we've never really had a progressive city council. I mean, a majority. We've had progressives in the council, although nowadays we have to try and define that better because many people who call themselves progressive have very different views of what that means. Um, but, you know, there are people out there working on hopefully that we would reach that point. Uh, but the key to me is not necessarily, I mean, uh, you have to have people that are really, real progressive as opposed to people that just say it. Um, well, some people so, think that depending upon these, how these 15 seats go, we actually could have a much more progressive Chicago City Council. Do you agree? Uh, yes, except, um, again, you know, I'm, um, I, you know, I ha- have to say there are times when um, progressive also means very independent-minded, okay? Uh-huh. Progressive, means you, progressive means you fight dramatically to change the levels of power. You try and do things because the stack is usually uh, stacked against average folks, whether it's in taxes or housing or one of things. So you're always trying to deal with that inequity. And you go on and on, at least in, in my definition of progressive um, but sometimes progressive gets tied into political tactics, okay? And sometimes those political tactics would not be the kind of things that I think progressives should be doing. Um, Explain what you mean by that, David. Well, what I mean is where there's some very good progressives out there, but there are times, for example, when some of the organizations um, – they, they kind of forget about what might move the larger agenda um, forward and are busy trying to harm individuals. Um, you know, um, how specific do you want me to be? So, for example, uh, one of my concerns all along over the last few years has been, um, att- you know, sometimes attacks are necessary and organizers are necessary, protests, and that's all 
fine, okay? But there are, remember, there's goods and sides, uh, good and bad sides of the same coin. So in this case, some of the information with, with an organization that I like, Working Families, um, has been too, in my book, doctrinaire. It's like, we want you to do whatever you do, make sure you attack Lori every day on the council floor, blah, blah, blah. Um, now, I'm not saying sometimes there's not good issues and they should do it, but what I mean, sometimes there's an overfocus on our political ends rather than winning, how can I say it, winning the long goal, okay? Um, so that, that's why there's various definitions of progressive. You know, I've fought with some of the um, leading folks who see themselves as the most progressive, most radical in the council. And as you know, I've said this before on your errors, I, I have a hard time finding people who can oppose Fritz Kagey and support Berrios uh, and really call themselves progressive. So that's what I'm getting at. There's this, sometimes a lot of political deals cut even by, quote, progressives. Sounds silly saying even. Um, a lot of people cut deals. So the point is, I would. Uh, my goal all along is to have people, they're really progressive on the issues, they're still open to, I guess, working with folks. That's, that's the best way to put it. I think that when words, particularly labels, get overused, they become meaningless. Or even worse, um, they're used by people um, to mean whatever they want them to mean. You know, I think that progressive is one of those words. You know, um, what exactly does that mean? What is the litmus test to show you are a progressive? I think I've mentioned this to you once before. You know, shortly after I started this show, somebody called in and they said, well, you know, I've listened to you. You're not a progressive. You're a liberal. And I'm like, "Okay, okay, I guess I'll live with that. Um, But, you know, if you had to define uh, in one sentence what it means to be a progressive, how would you boil it down? I, I, I reject the notion of being in one sentence, but basically <laughs> progressive, progressivism means to me is understanding, like I say, the system, by and large, is often rigged against racial minorities, average folks, etc. We're doing all the thousands of reasons for it. So a progressive is one that constantly fights not just for a particular policy, but a policy that will um, go against some of that. Okay, like I'd like to believe that the Tenants' Bill of Rights we fought for, uh, which, you know, years ago, is, is a model there. The tenants were being screwed royally. They had almost no rights. Landlords could do whatever they wanted. And once tenants actually had some rights, that begins to tip the apple. Uh, fighting for minimum wages, fighting for all sorts of worker conditions are a critical part of progressivism. Understanding that our system is t- very, very unfair on taxes. And understanding, for example, Republicans now are talking about a sales tax. Generally, Republicans are always looking for ways um, the taxes end up to be totally unfair. And the problem is Democrats can be all over the map on that. So for them, so the progressive um, person in, in Illinois would say, why don't we tax um, income gotten from pensions okay now i i would not want to make sure that the poor folks only getting a thirty thousand dollar pension they shouldn't have to pay anything but judges who get one hundred eighty thousand a year or more 
and many, many people in the political world getting one hundred and thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars a year, going up three percent every year, and and they're paying no Illinois income tax on it. Um, even the way we do much of our businesses, let's say you work in city or county government, okay, we say, well, you get a three percent raise. Well, a three percent raise with one hundred and fifty thousand dollars salary, that's a hell of a lot. And it ain't fair to the person who's making $31,000 a year. Their percent is a whole lot less. So we should always be looking for ways to equalize things, to make it more fair. Um, That's a lot more than one sentence. And so, but, you know, the good news is that progressive has become a more popular notion in, frankly, much of Illinois. You saw almost all the candidates running for governor before call themselves progressive. You see that. Uh, and a lot of these races going on now. So even if there's def- different definitions from people, a lot of people in the Progressive Caucus in the city council that I wouldn't necessarily call progressive, but they're part of the, the caucus, okay? Mm. So in other words, we need to use that to try and make people push on these things. For example, on things like one of the biggest problems we have, uh, trying to maintain a democracy and a weak one at that, Okay, is money and politics. If anything, uh, we've kind of gone the wrong way because of our courts. Our courts have now said um, your voice can be determined by money, and who's ever got the most is going to have the biggest voice. Whereas, uh, two progressive understands that the megaphone should not be determined by how much money you have. So, look at the, the little guy with the teeny little microphone and the Koch brothers. Only one of them's alive, but with massive amount of resources to get their word out. So, in questions like this, how do we how do we battle the corruptness in my book of of what's happened with our Supreme Court, or the structural damages in our, um, well, I guess, in the Constitution not being brought up to date? Um, so, in other words, so not only are we fighting things, I think, which help. Average people have a better life, whether it's in the, the way they get taxed or the kind of benefits they get. We're still struggling in this country. We can give um, what we call you know, sick, paid sick leave. It's amazing how cheap we are there. Uh, now, fortunately, Illinois would step up, step up on that, and I appreciate that. Um, so part of the difficulty is understanding, again, back to the money, is when money is allowed to the dirty money or the dark money, um, is prevalent in today's politics. And then the wealth of it, when a few billionaires can do an incredible, you know, give an incredible amount of money. So there are things we could do. Um, partly, I guess it was easier when you had the old machine and I had a handful of relatively progressive aldermen to show the differences um, between those individuals. Now it gets a little harder because of people all grabbing the mantle. Uh, but the, the point is, is that it's, it's good if people think progressivism means something good. We don't all have to agree on the definition. Um, I just would hope uh, some of the worst kind of politics, I'm just always trying to minimize that. Um, and just I'll give an example. I know you wanted to talk about the Merrill stuff. And um, I, I'm just speaking, in this case, as a neutral person who... Oh, hold that thought, because I do want to do a deep dive into this, but I don't want to get started and have to break for a commercial. David Orr from Good Government, Illinois. We're going to talk about uh, progressive politics and the mayor's race right after this. You're listening to WCPT 820, because facts matter. 
This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm joined by Good Government Illinois' David Orr. We were just, well, he was just getting ready to dive into talking about the mayor's race when I rudely interrupted him and made him wait till after the commercial break. So, David, go go ahead now. You have the floor. That wasn't rude at all. Um, <laughs> well, again, let me just make it clear from my point of view, uh, since I have not um, publicly endorsed at this moment at race, but just so people know, obviously I'm a close uh, friend of Chewy Garcia, uh, that I've um, often spoke out to what I believe are for significant accomplishments of Mary Laurie Lightfoot. I've had Brandon Johnson in my class. I know most of the other people, uh, not as well, but we're talking now just, um, again, analysis, hopefully somewhat objective analysis of what's going on. You'd asked me before, you know, there's, there's the highlights and low loads. You were asking me before, uh, Joan, before it came on the air about, well, with all these negative commercials, um, why do they do that? Do they really work? Well, my answer, and I'm not an expert here, would be they do they do them and they pay for them because they do work, um, and they 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 can work very significantly or they can work less. Uh, for example, I said I said some good things about uh, Mayor Lightfoot. Uh, I do think the ads attacking Chewy are way over the border, way out of line. I understand why. Remember, in politics, okay, you've got to understand, okay? Only two people, right, get in a runoff. So it's Lori Lightfoot's people have to make, have to knock Chewy out of the box. I think nobody realized Vallis was going to be creeping up, but anybody that knows Chicago politics and there's nine candidates and only one white person, they must have been asleep at the switch. Okay, so the point is um, she has to do her best to knock um, Chewy hard and to knock. I don't say she has to. I'm saying that's what I think they do. I don't just, I don't agree well, with that. Well, but, but recently, like in the last week or so, 90% of her campaign materials have all been directed at Paul Vallis. Uh, she seems right. to have, at least for the moment, put Chewy on the back burner. Why do you think that is? Well, I think the key is is what they're looking at. Remember, only two people can get in the runoff. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think my, my guess is, yeah, they realize that it'd be nice if they could knock Vallis back because, remember, Brandon Johnson is also a threat. I'm assuming, and no offense to any of the other candidates, okay, the other candidates, um, they're African-American in this case, I don't see them getting in the runoff, period. Okay, no, no offense to Jamal. Rodney or Sophia or Willie Wilson. Or Cam Buckner. Um, what do you think about Cam Buckner? Cam. Well, a talented individual, but just this is not yet his time. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's the best way to put it. They frankly have no chance. Um, but, but, you know, people run. One, run. Um, one um, person, I, I don't know if this was in Crane's Chicago Business, but I was reading one article where they assessed everybody and they said, you know, Cam Buckner was one of the earliest people to jump in the race. And whoever, it was some pollster who was doing kind of a, you know, backseat analysis. And they said, you know, if Cam Buckner had known who all was going to get into this race and what it was going to look like down the road, I don't think Cam Buckner would have thrown his hat in the ring. Do you agree with that? 
Maybe. I mean, people people run for offices for various reasons. In other words, it's pretty clear, at least in my mind, maybe not theirs, that he's, uh, at least five of the candidates we're talking about really has no shot. Okay, take Alderman Sawyer, you know, a decent guy, big name because of his father, who was mayor for a while. Um, and Sawyer, I believe he's getting out of the council anyway. Uh, really? A lot of people... Well, I'm not sure. I, I, since he's running for mayor, I don't think he's also running for alderman. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, so the, I thought you meant so, for some other reason. No, but I'm saying so. There's a variety of reasons that people run. Some because they're bought into running, they're promised things. Some because they're kind of wacko. Some because they really want to run for another office and want to get their name out and have the money to do it. Also, well, the same pollster I mean, said that, like with Sophia King, that because. She has ambitions, and because she's in her early 50s, that she might have thrown her hat in the ring, if for no other reason than to increase her profile, because she wants to do something more than simply be an older woman, and that this is a good way to sort of maybe elevate her to some new level of political success. Yeah, well, exactly. And I, I can't get into Sophia's mind to tell you that. I can tell you, though, that that kind of analysis happens a lot of times. I mean, there's a lot of other reasons that people run for office. Uh, and I'm not saying they're bad necessarily. Sometimes you run because you don't think you can win the first time and you want to get better known. But there's a variety of reasons, okay? Um, but we, we were trying, and therefore with Cam, um, whether or not he would have maybe done things differently. But uh, the problem is that's, that's the thing about politics. People don't realize um, things change so much. The way the field looked like it was going to be in November uh, is very different than it was in January. It was going to be in December. It looked very differently than it is in February. So things can change because it depends on how much money people spend. People don't usually do the ads early, take an example. In this case, that Lori, because she had some uh, significant bad press that she needed to spend and so she started her commercials early. Brandon, because of he discovered Mr. Brian Johnson, because he was much more unknown than they realized, hovering around 2 or 3% at times, had to spend and keep spending. Willie Wilson, who has all this money, I'm not sure where it comes from because he won't you know, really show all that stuff. But So Willie keeps putting up the ads. Uh, Paul Vallis has a lot of money. He's able to put up the ads. Uh, on the other hand, um, Chewy who to many looks like clearly a front runner because um, he was running before, uh, well-respected. Uh, for politicians, this thing called you know, um, a positive to negative rate, that's like really important for politicians. Um, like Tony, for example, got a lot of trouble because she was what they call underwater. So more, more people thought more poorly of her than they thought well of her. Um, personally, I've been lucky, and I'm not, excuse me for saying this, but I've always been lucky to have something like a, oh, I don't know, eight to one ratio um, of having a lot more positive than negatives. Um, so, Chewy was someone that had some real pluses there, but for whatever reasons, Chewy um, waited a while on a number of things, um, didn't do the first ad until after he'd been fairly savagely attacked on two major issues, um, partly by the incumbent mayor, but other people as well. Okay. I want to talk to you more about that. Uh, David, we're up against a break. Uh, Let's continue this discussion with David Orr of Good Government Illinois right after this. 
Facebook. Message us. Instagram. Follow us. Twitter. Tweet us. They keep me connected. Let's get social on the socials. WCPT 820. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT Willow Springs, is powered by ComEd. See how ComEd is preparing for a clean energy future at comed.com slash clean energy. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820. And I'm joined by David Orr from Good Government, Illinois. We were just talking, uh, David was just talking about how uh, Chewy was one of, if not the last person to declare himself a candidate for mayor. And I've got to say, um, David, I've watched politicians for a long time. I don't really understand. Maybe you can explain it to me why he would have been waiting I've I've known politicians to get in late in the game, but generally, like um, when Lisa Madigan was first running for state's attorney, there was a well-respected man who, like, literally waited till the 11th hour to jump in because at the time, you know, everybody was thinking, you know, it was nepotism, it was this, it was that. But he waited so long to jump in that all of the money and all of the endorsements had already been spoken for. And I was a little puzzled by what Chewy did, because it kind of seemed the same way. It seemed like a lot of major endorsements had already been made and a lot of money had already been committed. Can you give me some insight into, A, why he did it or why he did it so late in the game? Well, I'll try, um, but I I don't think it had the consequences that you're suggesting, okay? Um, First of all, remember, he was up for re-election as a congressperson. Okay, and he decided for whatever reasons that he was going to get that behind him first, which is not unusual for many politicians. Um, I think he also felt that that was okay because I do believe they they were getting so many good positives. So you could say, well, other people are picking up certain persons. He was picking up all sorts of support, even when he wasn't a candidate uh, and commitments of money and so forth. So I I feel like I think in this case. The, the the challenge to Chewy wasn't so much uh, that it came in late. I mean, people will use that. The real key was, I think, um, and perhaps in, in delaying a bit before he did his commercials, like I said earlier, because people were out with those very early and heavy, and even though many of them saw him as a frontrunner, uh, when the attack ads came, they were before Chewy had really put up stuff. And so even if you have a fairly well-respected name or some kind of support, it doesn't mean everybody, not everybody remembers you that well or knows you that well. And so these ads, particularly um, the ones I, I totally disagree with, I mean, referring to Chewy as corrupt and so forth, I just think they're just outrageous, unfair, outrageous, and not true. Uh, but you asked me earlier, they wouldn't be paying all this money for ads if they didn't think they worked. And they don't always work depending on what else is going on in the race. See what I mean? What do you mean so by that? Example, well, let's say, for example, that um, the campaign had decided earlier in January to, to start a, a major commercial. I mean, they had stuff, I think, on, online about you. Let's say a major commercial for Chewy talking about his past support and all the things he'd done and pretty pretty significant track record he would have and his 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 work with Harold Washington, his work with the first Mexican state senator, you know, all, all those things. Um 
anything like that tends to help, okay? Because the more when people feel pretty solid against you, they don't buy all this stuff. That's why some of the people, when people see some of the polls show Lori still doing very strong, and those that are critical, they don't believe it. Well, how could they? Well, <laughs> um, you know, people look at things differently, okay? So whether they like it or not, a lot of people benefited from Lori Lightfoot, um, or they like to fight in or whatever it may be reasons that, that others may not like. So in this case, the fact that other people are spending a lot right away and therefore coming up, for example, Vallis spending money coming up with the, a very good lane to do that. The only white person, intelligent and blah, 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 blah. Um, and, you know, the, this, the crime thing is all very confusing because, frankly, um, I don't want to digress too far, but, you know, we act like someone's going to always have that secret thing about crime. You know, the issues don't change. Um, we had the same talent four years ago, 10 years ago, 14 years ago, 30 years ago. We always say like, oh boy, someone's going to come up with just the right plan. Okay. And that's the naivety of us sometimes. It's not always a plan. It's a person who can really make it work. Okay. Um, but anyway, so the point is that because they have the smarts and the fortitude. Yeah. All sorts of reasons. In other words, uh, again, I don't want to go too far afield, but I, I think, um, yeah, a lot of it has really to do with the character and leadership of both the individual mayor and the talent they have behind them to do the job. Most of these, most of these promises are fairly simple, simple and, and the same, not simple, but the same among almost all these candidates in terms of how to fight crime. Um, so uh, all I'm saying is that um, Chewy could have been hurt more. Um, if he wasn't, you know, well-respected. And so the key is, has he been able to come back enough? He's still, you know, certainly a likely possibility to be one of the two. So, um, but so each, each candidate has, has its thing. I'm forgetting at least talking about what I'm calling the top four. And some might include Willie in there because of some of the polls that show him doing okay. But I don't think, well, when I say that, (laughs) Um, remember, if you, if you end up having the second person with a very small percentage, okay, remember, I think four years ago it turned out to be, is that, I'm, I'm not sure, but I thought it was Lori had about 19%, I remember, and Tony had about 17%, okay? Yeah, something, something close um, to that, yeah. Something close to that. So, uh, again, we don't know where things are. Uh, will the attacks on Vallis cool his jets a little bit? Um, those Chewies having commercials now, does that make a big effect? Um, um, Brandon Johnson is spending money in commercials, does that have an effect? Brandon Johnson, remember, we have seven African-American candidates. Brandon Johnson has to uh, do a lot of damage to Lori to move up, okay? And Lori seems to be consistently ahead of him, but there's still three weeks to go. Um, and another big factor that can change as we have other candidates, again, not talking about quality. If we talk about Cam and um, um, Mr. Sawyer and Sophia King and Jamal, um, we talk about those people, and even including Willie. As African voters see what's going on, they see, well, it seems to be this is a race, if we're not careful in some people's minds, there'll be no African-American in, in the um, contest period. Okay. 
uh, it might be Paul Vallis and Chewy. I mean, I'm just saying people could think that way. And so sometimes voters, in this case, let's say African-American voters, may say, wait a second, I like Cam, but I just, I'm not going to waste it. So um, I'm going to go to one of the people who looks like they have the best shot to maybe make the, uh, to make the runoffs. And that's why Lori's people are trying to consistently argue that she has a decent shot to be one of those. And Brandon Johnson is hoping that some of the money he spends and the stuff he does, the organizing and the uh, ads would make him that choice. So, you know, there's a lot, I, I can't do the math real quick, but it's somewhere over 25%, uh, without including Willie, with Willie. So we talk about maybe, uh, maybe close to 45% of the vote is in these other candidates. Um, okay. Now, again, that doesn't mean that I'm saying they're all black votes, but that's a lot of votes that if people say that so-and-so is my first choice, but I'm going to go elsewhere, that's a lot of other votes that could dramatically affect this race. And particularly for African-Americans. You mean in, for the, when it's down to two candidates? No, I mean before that. Before that. Okay, so again, let's, let's say it's tomorrow, and you're trying to figure out what to do when you say, I like Cam, you know, uh, I really want to vote for him, but it just doesn't seem like he's going to be able to, to be one of those two, so what do I want to do? Mm-hmm. Do I... Do people, do you think, do people just say, you know, I don't care. I like that Cam Buckner guy. You know, if I don't vote for him, he sure won't win. I mean, he may not win anyway, but if I don't vote for him, he's definitely not going to win. I've known people who believed in in something and somebody so strongly that they would do, they would make that kind of a vote, whether or not it turns out um, to be voting for mayor or what you, you know, what we, you and I might call a wasted vote. Absolutely. Well, I mean, again, there's all sorts of different things. We're talking about many tens of thousands of people here, and some will, of course, stick with a person. If we look at last time, uh, we saw people getting there at 4% and 5%, so that, that may be fair, and some of them shifted because for whatever concern may be. We don't. I'm just. I'm just giving you the very the variables that could affect what's going on. Okay, particularly if some of the, uh, anyway, significant number of African American voters who are picking folks that look like they won't get in the runoff if they choose to uh, put their votes elsewhere. Um, so there's all these all these variables, and a lot of it depends on money and strategy of the campaign, um, and how, how effective sometimes the negative ads are. This is um, this is kind of tangential here, um, but before we take a break, when uh, Chewy got into the race late, I can't even remember who I was talking to, but I said something about, well, you know, he's missed out on a lot of endorsements, ad- endorsements that in previous races he has gotten. And the person said to me, they were very much a Chewy supporter, but they said to me, that's okay. Endorsements are bad because if you get an endorsement, then you're beholden to that organization. Do you really think endorsements are bad? And that you're beholden? If the International Brotherhood of Hammers endorses you, do you feel a special responsibility to the International Brotherhood of Hammers? Well, I don't. I think the key is always character. There's a lot of politicians that do that, but character basically is I've gotten people. I, I was most proud, re- not recently, let's say several years ago, to get a, a fairly big contribution for me. It might have been $1,500 or something from someone that said, you know what? I totally disagree with your politics, 
but I totally admire the way you run the office. Okay, this happened to be a much more conservative individual. Um, uh, so, yes, I think character determines that. So, but endorsements are generally good. You should just have to grow up, be a big boy, and decide you're not going to let anybody steamroll you, whether they endorse you or not. But like I said, go back. I don't think that hurt Chewy. Chewy's picking endorsements up right and left behind the scenes that weren't announced immediately in that same time period. So, And if I remember a guy named Harold Washington got in pretty late, too. Um, hmm. So, again, it, it, I mean, there's strategies in getting them late. Okay. Um, but anyway, you know, I mean, I know certain people are going to attack him for it because if they look for anything to attack. I mean, some of the, the Brandon people, remember Brandon and Chewy were talking many months ago, and both of them said it doesn't make sense for both of us to run because we have similar supporters. Um, and then things happen, and it turns out they never kind of worked out anything, and before long they both won. Hmm. Um, so some of Brandon's supporters say, oh, well, Chewy bad. Yeah, he should have announced it. Well, I knew Chewy as a candidate for re-election in Congress uh, was likely going to wait a while. So I don't think that I don't think that hurt Chewy uh, because his numbers in December, even at that November, were were pretty darn good. Um, I think the key, the key for him is recovering some from some of the uh, what you might call, in my view, over way over over the line attacks that I don't think are fair. Uh, David, we need to take a break. And when we come back, we have some callers who want to join our conversation. I'm talking with Good Government Illinois' David Orr. We'll be back with more right after this. Chicago's Progressive Talk, WCPT 820, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I am joined by David Orr from Good Government, Illinois, and Steve from the Gold Coast is calling in to join our conversation. Hey, Steve, you're on with me and David Orr. Go ahead. Yes, I want to make a couple of points. And and I think uh, from the standpoint of Lori Lightfoot, I mean, to be the incumbent and at this point, uh, three weeks out from the election, wondering whether or not she's actually going to make the cut in terms of the two people who are going to be in the likely runoff, I mean, says a great deal. Uh, you know, a lot of her, you know, allies in the city council, people who endorsed her before, are either staying away from her or in other cases have actually put their arm around somebody else. And I, I do think that people need to understand the way this works. One, uh, just as a side note, I think that this does make the case for ranked choice voting, you know, something that we need to discuss, you know, you know moving forward in Chicago. And also why in God's name we're still having, you know, a mayoral election in February in Chicago. And again, that's another topic we need to take up. Steve, stay on the line, but I want to uh, I want to ask David Orr, because one of my uh, notes to talk to him about if we had the time was um, there's been a proposal. I think it come, came from Matt Martin. I'm not sure that um, in the Chicago City Council that Chicago consider ranked choice voting. And David, you were kind of talking about that self-selecting when you said somebody who might like Cam Buckner might realize that Cam Buckner doesn't have a chance of winning, therefore they're going to vote for somebody else, which is a kind of a self-selecting rank choice voting. Do you think it will ever, first of all, rank choice voting, you vote for, let's say, mayor of the city of Chicago, but instead of just picking one candidate to vote for, you vote for all of them. First, my first choice is Chewy, my second choice is Paul Vallis, my third choice is Lori Lightfoot, and on and on and on. And if nobody gets 50 percent plus one, then what they do is they take everybody's ninth choice 
and they take them off the ballot and they look at those ballots and those people who voted for John Smith to be in ninth place or to be in first place, but not enough of them, who did they vote to be in second place? And then those votes get distributed. And if somebody still doesn't break the 50 percent line, you do it again with number eight in line. Um, it makes a lot of sense. Evanston is um, I th- I think they're already doing it. I know they've been very serious no, about getting it on the on the books there. What do you, do you think it'll ever happen in Chicago and would it be a good thing? Well, first, let me, uh, Steve, thoughtful comments all across the board, and we don't time to talk about it, yes, but moving the time of the elections out of a horrible winter would be a very smart move. Um, ranked choice, yeah, I think it's, uh, I think it has a lot of good things. There's some good support there. I think you're going to have uh, Elisa Kaplan on your show, Hillary Form Illinois, and she certainly knows more than me, um, talking about this. My only reservation, okay, but I basically say I think it's a good idea. Um, the only reservation in certain elections like this, okay, and I, I'm not, I never want to let money decide um, how we do elections. No, we're going to save money here. That, that, that's a dangerous angle to go. Like in this case, for example, nine candidates, um, we don't really know a lot about them, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's hard to know. And so, like, let's say if you do that, um, you, you know people don't know a lot about them. And I'm, I'm, what, I'm, what I'm troubled with, although I generally like the idea, I like ranked choice voting, is there's something also nice about marrying it to two, okay, and then having another campaign, even though it's shorter, only four weeks or so, where people can really dig deep Okay, deeper than before into those top two. Okay, there's you know because there's education going on. Yeah, bad ads can hurt us all, and misinformation can hurt us. But there's something about that I like. So uh, there are different ways to do ranked choice voting. Uh, like you said, people have a choice. They don't have to rank everybody. They may not know them. But like in this case, um, you know, you could think of a lot of people, um, if they could pick their second choices, whether or not we'd be surprised, the difference would be. So, again, I think it's something definitely to be looking at, um, although I, I clearly like the idea where sometimes there's a runoff and there's two top people, and we might learn more about them and, and their policies uh, in a campaign like that as opposed to just – Mm-hmm. Okay, I, uh, Steve, I interrupted you. You wanted to make another point? Yes, and, and this is where we sort of get into how the sausage is made, uh, because you have the second and third third tier candidates that aren't going to win. Now, what's going to happen after this first and this initial round, you're going to have the, the two top tier candidates that will be in the runoff. So what happens then? Well, you know, a lot of people got these middle single digit numbers. You know, this is where the top two candidates run to these people and ask them, you know, what can, who can you bring me to the table? What can you bring us? And this is where the back door, the backroom deals get struck. You know, OK, you know, somebody gets a grant, somebody gets to run something, you know, OK, can you bring me? And, you know, because when you, you know, tack on enough of those the second and third, the third tier candidates and their endorsement, that may be enough to put you over the top. But again, you know, this is this is why those people still matter, even though they're not going to win. David, you want to weigh in on that? I'm just saying, fair enough. I mean, I think there's, it certainly happens a lot in Chicago's history. There's plenty of people who don't do it that way. I'm not even sure those endorsements make a lot of difference. Um, uh, but yes, it's a fair, a fair point, okay, where you say the sausage is being made. And, <laughs> um, but, uh, and, and you know, obviously, you'd like to have everybody, but um, a lot of the votes are not going to matter anyway. But 
But yeah, we, we, I don't think they shouldn't be doing the deals. The point I'm making is that, the point I'm making is that you know, it's too bad. I could name you a lot, but I won't right now on public radio. But Steve is right; that happens. Thank you, thank you so much um, for the for the call, Steve. Um, David, we don't have a huge amount of. Uh, time left. We kind of skipped over the first thing I was asking you about, which was the aldermanic elections. I have no doubt that WCPT is going to be doing some kind of election special the night of the vote on the 28th. Um, if you were my producer, which of the aldermanic races would you want me to make sure I was keeping track of? Anything that you think is really exciting, sure. interesting, shocking, challenging? Before the 28th or after? Because we'll know a lot more after the 28th when it's all going <laughs> No, no, no. As we watch the returns come in, you know, we only have time to focus on so many races when we're on the radio. Obviously, the mayor's race is going to get a lot of attention. Um, but okay, of the of the 15-some aldermanic seats, which would you say would be the top one, two, three, or even five that we should make sure we keep an eye on? Before I do that, I have to do this. I have to say, dear Joan, if any people, <laughs> your listeners, want to see any of our podcasts and they haven't, they can look them up on Spotify or on something called rss.com. Um, just, okay. Um, well, let's see. Let's start, um, since I'm on the north side, let's start kind of lakefront. I think, um, uh, whew, we've got some uh, real critical ones, I think, in uh, 46 and 48. For example, mm-hmm. um, I think. Um, out what about there, 45 with Jim Gardner? Yes, I was going to say 45 for sure. Um, uh, four and five down the lakefront because there's lots of candidates. We'll see what happens. Um, uh, maybe particularly in four, uh, maybe very competitive. Um, I don't remember all the numbers like I should, but um, uh, where uh, Jessica Gutierrez is running, that's a pretty. A uh, pretty hot one. The first ward is clearly a hot one. Um, um, people are going to pay attention to that. Um, oh, let's see. There's, there's a lot where there's not a whole lot of a challenge. Um, so that's a start. That's a start. That's a good start. The 10th ward is going to be fascinating. Oh, I left out the 25th. The 25th is a real barn burner, and that will be decided the 28th anyway, because at this point there's only two candidates. Um, and the 10th ward where um, Sue Garza's refiring, that is big. Um, and How about where a uh, fourth, where Sophia King is uh, out of the running because she's running for mayor? Yeah, definitely four, because that's um, there's some very talented people there. There's some that influential politicians have endorsed, but there's other, other really talented people, so um, that's definitely one to watch, I think. So basically, we should pay attention to pretty much all of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I didn't. I didn't get anywhere near fifty. But, but <laughs> well, no, I'm just talking about the the fifteen where somebody is leaving or elected to higher office or retiring. Um, those are the ones that I've been interviewing a lot of the candidates, and there's deep mm-hmm. fields for most all of those races. Really deep fields. Right. Yeah, there are a lot of talented people, um, which is good. It makes it challenging for the voters, but they are talented. So, um, And I, I just um, – we didn't have a chance to talk about this, but uh, if people do want to look at the podcast, remember you're talking about 
uh, at least in the municipal series, three very talented people, and a lot said about the current council, what can be done, particularly Dick Simpson talking about, you know, all the corruption and how things have, I, I think, gotten better. What are some of the issues that people have been working on to make that better about all the Manitoba, the number of things, and particularly um, all, all the various work on equity being done in the city, both that Maria and Scott talked about and the environment, which is kind of a big issue and what are things being done. So um, they're pretty substantive. You know, they're talented people with a lot of good ideas. So uh, just want to mention that. And <laughs> I know that uh, there's a lot of our listeners who w- will remember Dick Simpson, Dick Simpson from his days as an older person. Uh, but earlier you you said what he was doing now, and it is, it escapes me. Remind me, David, what's Dick Simpson up to these days? Well, Dixon just retired from a, a very long, distinguished career at UIC as a professor, but he's written, oh, dozens and dozens of books, many, many articles. Um, I remember uh, some of his books and articles all together have talked about all that corruption. I mean, he's the one that cataloged everything. I could tell you why these 2,000 people you know, went to jail and for what? Okay, um, so over the over the current years, and it gives you a feel for some of the challenges we face. But he also wanted to point out that one of the most significant reforms in modern history was just three years ago, when the city council, um, with the mayor's support, and I think um, Scott um, Wagesback and some other people, they actually passed language to prevent what the Ed Burks of the year have done have done for years. And that is that there's a new phrase in there saying something about, yes, you might have an outside job or outside income, but it cannot conflict with your fiduciary responsibilities and all of them, which meant, I mean, mm-hmm. the thing that Burke did every day of his life, while he was finance chairman, he was also representing airlines and banks and Trump and everything else in the world. And and uh, so obviously in any other city, that's a blatant conflict of interest. It shouldn't happen. But in Chicago, that was happening. And uh, that was a major milestone. Doesn't mean we still may not have crooks, you know, we catch them now and then, but it makes it very difficult for them to get paid by the city council now with fairly decent salaries and still represent clients whose representation they're doing is in conflict um, with the city. So um, anyway, we just pointed that out with a number of other things. Well, David, I know that you are traveling, so I particularly appreciate your spending time with us today. I will uh, send you back to your family. Thank you, thank you, thank you, my friend, for talking with us. We will do it again soon. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. This hour of Joan Esposito Live Local and Progressive is brought to you by Team Hawkberg. If you want to buy a house or refinance a house, call 855-56-DAVID or visit 56david.com. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. I'm telling you, CPT 820. Coming to a website near you, wttw.com slash firsthand. Starting this coming Monday, February 13th, And throughout 2023, there are going to be a series of documentaries. They're part of a first, what WTTW's first hand initiative, which has been going on for about five years now. This one 
is called Life Firsthand, Life After Prison. And it is a series of documentaries and talks and interviews about what it is like to when you finally exit those prison gates. Listen to this promo for it. 24 years is a long time. I'll be happy when I finally walk out the gate. When I got out of prison, I was happy to be getting out, but you started hitting all these roadblocks. The stigma of who you were never leaves. For years, I've been told society hates you. It's like having a scarlet letter. There's an X for employers, getting housing. Why are you going to deny a person basic civil rights for making poor choices in the past? The first month, I slept with this big old knife under my pillow because of the fear. You demand that we serve our time, become corrected, and come out better than when we came in. You know, stuff happens, but it's how we respond to what happens. If we're given the tools to be able to change, we will change. I know that I was wrong. It didn't just affect me. It affected a lot of people. I hurt my family very badly. I have a lot of work to do to make things right. You got the focus on never proving yourself to them, but always knowing who you are. You're talking about restoring people to civility. That is a big task. This is my new beginning. A lot of us have always been conflicted about just exactly what sort of function our prison system is supposed to have. Is it solely about punishment or is there supposed to be some sort of rehabilitation that takes place? And frankly, even if it does take place, is it effective? And once people are out of prison, do they have the tools and the support they need to make a successful life? That's part of what firsthand is looking into with this firsthand life after prison. Again, it debuts February 13th. These documentaries are going to run through 2023. Um, we're going to do this. Um, we're going to spend the next hour talking about this, but we're going to kind of rotate our guest list a little bit. We're starting right now with executive producer Mario Tharp and one of the subjects of one of the documentaries, Nick Creighton. Nick, Mario, thank you both uh, so much for being here. I think that this is, you know, this is something people talk about. But, you know, even somebody like me who has been, you know, paying attention to the news and being a reporter, I don't really feel like this is something that I understand. I don't understand the ins and outs. I don't understand what's available and what people need. This is um, this is really important work you're doing. Mario, let's start with you. How did you get involved with this and what motivates you here? Sure. First, thank you very much, Joan, for having us on. I think it's a very important topic. And uh, I know I speak on behalf of everyone at WTTW uh, by saying that we really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, let me say that I'm actually the producer and one of the directors. Dan oh, okay. Did I promote you to executive producer? Uh, well, hey, look, I appreciate it, but uh, <laughs> I have to give credit where credit is due. Dan Protest and Ann Gleason are both the executive producers. Okay. Um, but, yeah, you know, I, so the question, I guess, was, was what got me interested in this documentary. Um, I have been doing this for a very long time. 
And, I, you know, I personally made the decision years ago, well, about five or six years ago, that I wanted to work on projects that were meaningful and um, life-changing. And I honestly believe that this documentary series is one of those projects. Um, so I was approached by WTTW. I've done a number of documentaries, three other documentaries with them. And um, I just, when I was asked to work on it, I, there, there was no question uh, about it for me. Um, it is a very powerful uh, series, and um, it's something that everyone needs to see. Uh, there are a lot of issues. I mean, you just pose a number of questions in your introduction about, you know, people having conflicting ideas on what the prison system is supposed to do. Um, you know, I was one of those that was kind of on the fence um, about, you know, are this, are we doing the right thing with helping people that are that are, you know, been convicted and attempting to uh, regain their life? Are we rehabilitating people? Are we putting them in the right, moving them in the right direction? Um, I can tell you, after spending oh boy, months. Um, talking to people like Nick, like, like Nicholas, like Tawana, Paul S., Kyle, Marcelo, that um, there is work that needs to be done in the system. There are too many people who, unfortunately, adds to the recidivism rate because of the issues that we have, right? So if you release someone or if someone is released, from serving time. Sometimes we just expect for them to fall in line and, um, you know, find a job, find housing, but that's not easy. And Nicholas can certainly speak to that, uh, to that, to that issue. But I spent months, countless hours talking to our five subjects. And even outside of our five subjects, I interviewed over 30, 40 people to try and find the right five people which we did. Um, but just hearing their stories about the struggles that they had, it's a, you know, some people wonder, well, why do people just go back and commit crimes? Why mm -hmm. are they back in prison? Um, if you can't find a job, you know, it's, it's, I'm not saying it's the right thing to do, but I see why it happened. Because we're not setting up people for success. And that's one thing that this documentary series will will show. Um, why don't you jump in here at this point, Nick, and tell <laughs> us tell us your story? Uh, well, first, Joan, uh, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to hear us out. And as far as a, a convicted felon, uh, I want to say thank you on behalf of uh, all those that are incarcerated for hearing our story. Um, I just want to piggyback kind of on what Mario was just talking about and you. We talk about this issue of public safety, and this is a hot topic, and I, I truly understand what everybody's saying about it. But the thing is, when you're talking about public safety, this is not just a police issue. Like, public safety is incumbent upon all of us as a community to come together to ensure that we're all safe. But how can this be effective 
if you continue to ostracize and restrict a particular sector of people and tell us, well, you're not a part of society or you're not a full-fledged member of society. Because in Department of Corrections, when you're serving your time, someone like me who's been locked up for 24 years, I was a teenager when I went in, and I'm coming home as a 42-year-old man, and you're you're telling me to rebuild a life, which I understand. I accepted my guilt. I served my time. And now I'm trying to be a member of society. I'm trying to regain that which I lost. And so Department of Correction says rehabilitation, rehabilitation. You're telling us to be restored to a level of constructive and useful activity within society. But how can I be useful or constructive if you're not giving me a chance to utilize my skills or be a part of the society that I was, you know, uh, taken away from? So I think the biggest issue for me is that someone like me who has acquired skills since I've been incarcerated, I speak multiple languages, I'm a coder, I publish books, like I have a lot of skill sets. And then I go on these job interviews and they tell me how fantastic of a person that I am and how they want me. And then I'm denied because of a conviction that is two decades old. Again, I understand these things, but there is a like a hypocrisy that slaps us in the face and it makes us feel like, well, why even bother? Kind of like what Mario was just talking about. It's like you're fighting, you're fighting, you're fighting to be better and you're continuously pushed back like, no, 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 we don't want to be bothered with you. Um, Nick, we need to take a real quick break. We will be back with Mario Tharp and Nick Creighton. They are part of a new effort that's going to be debuting this coming Monday, uh, TTW Firsthand, Life After Prison, a series of documentaries. We're going to be back with more right after this. Around the Town Chicago with Al Besslaw. I want to give away some stuff, and some of these things I'm going to give away, you don't even have to answer a question. So all you have to do is call. For the magic of the Nutcracker, four tickets. All you have to do is say, crack my nuts. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Where did you come up with that? I don't know. I just felt like saying something silly. <laughs> okay. Sunday afternoons at 2 on WCPT 820. Because facts matter. You're listening to WCPT 820. Don't turn that dial. A dangerous mistake to make. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. I am joined by the producer and one of the subjects of WTTW's firsthand life after prison. If you want to learn more about this project, uh, starting February 13th and running through 2023, go to the website, wttw.com slash firsthand. We were uh, just talking with Nick Creighton, who is one of the subjects of one of the documentaries. Nick, you told me, you told us about your the skills that you learned while you were still incarcerated. You know, you learned coding, you learned languages, and yet... Because of your conviction, you haven't been able to to put those skills to work on a job. Um, you didn't tell us too much about you know what you went to prison for as a teenager, but um, I'm sure that a lot of people are wondering. Well, you know, maybe the reason people are afraid to hire you was the offense you went to prison for. Was it was it violent? Mm-hmm. 
Yes. Um, I went to prison for first-degree murder. I was uh, uh, convicted of accountability. And to that, I do understand. I, I'm, I'm sympathetic to that. I'm not remiss to what I went to uh, prison for. It is violence. But at the same time, um, I have inalienable rights just like everybody else. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, the courts convicted me, sentenced me to 24 years. I served my time. And so if I was not going to be granted my full, reinstated my full rights back as a citizen, what is the point in even letting us out of prison? You know, yeah. it's like, it's kind of like pushing back on us, like, okay, well, you served your time, but yeah, we really don't know if we want to have you around. So it's like, what kind of an environment are you creating for the people that are returning citizens? There is a pathway for us to go to prison. There is not a pathway for us coming out as returning citizens back to becoming reacclimated to society. People have the right to be afraid, but you have to give us a chance. That's all we're asking for. Yeah. Um, well, it's, I guess, you know, if I were in a position to be hiring, you know, the question I'd be asking myself is, yes, it's been 24 years and I'm guessing mm-hmm. that this person has changed, but how do I, how do I know for sure? Um, as a producer, Mario, how do you, how do you deal with those questions? Do you have any, any answers for us? Yeah, you know, I, I think, <clears throat> You, know, you can't you can't judge a person based off of, and, and for instance, Nicholas's case, something that happened 24 years ago. You know, he was a teenager. He made a mistake, and then sometimes, you know, not sometimes. I think a lot of times you really have to think about a person's upbringing because um, that makes a difference um, for why they maybe put themselves or got themselves in a situation that they were in. Let me give you an example. Uh, Tawana Pope is one of our, our subjects. And I mean, her story, all five of the stories are amazing, but hers is amazing as well. She has been, she's been out of, of jail. She, she really served time in a lot of, in, in Cook County jail and not necessarily prison. But um, with her story, she was, she was raised in an environment. Like her and her mother used to get high together. You can imagine, you know, her as a teenager and a young adult and her and her mother were fighting over drugs. That's the environment that she was raised in. But she was fortunate enough to turn her life around after, you know, a number of years and realizing that she wanted to break that cycle. She changed her life around and now she's um, doing amazing things, running a nonprofit organization where she's helping people that were like her. Uh, she she has a full time job as an intake counselor. She's an author, an ordained minister. You know, it took a lot of work for her to get there. Um, but at some point, we have to give people a chance. And if you keep saying no, 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 you committed this crime twenty years ago. You committed this crime five or ten years ago. Then we unfortunately have to. Ex- back for people to go back to doing that same thing because ultimately again you have to put yourself in a or try to get in a position where you can survive 
And the way that you can survive is by what? Making money to pay your bills, support your family. And, you know, that that is the very, I think, at the top of the list of all of the issues that returning citizens have to deal with. That's the number one. And, and Nick can, Nicholas can confirm this either way. But from my, research, from my experience, that is the number one issue. Because that Nick, is what could- in some of the materials I saw from TTW, uh, it says that you are uh, trying to launch your own tech company. Are you still doing that? Oh, absolutely. I haven't been deterred from that in the least. Um, I've recently just filed my uh, LLC trademark, so forth. Uh, I'm moving full-fledged ahead because, again, I believe in being a productive member of society. And that means contributing, uh, possibly giving, you know, being an employer myself one day, hopefully, and, you know, moving forward with my life. Well, I guess that's one way to circumvent the idea that nobody who has an established company wants to hire you. Uh, the heck with it, you know, start your start your own effort. And Nick, when down the road, when your company is successful, what will your policy be about hiring people who picked up their skills in prison? Now, you know, to that, my thing is this. We have Department of Corrections for a reason. So do we not trust them to do their job or are we not trust in the system itself? Like you can go and you can talk to the wardens. You can do references with counselors and social workers and things like that. These are the people that are closest to us during that time. So why not speak with these people that can attest to our character on a day-to-day basis? They're the perfect referral system. They can tell Mm -hmm. you if we were problematic, if we were doing the right thing, because you don't have to get up and do anything in corrections. You can choose to lay in a cell and do absolutely nothing. Everything that I've achieved, I made a choice to get up and to do it, and to learn something. And I'm not the only one. So in the future, that'll be one of my referral systems. Hey, how was this guy? Did he learn the necessary skills? Or the woman, did they learn the necessary skills? How were they in prison with the staff? Were they in accord? Things like that. Mm -hmm. Nick Creighton is one of the documentary subjects. Um, Mario, let's back up a little bit. Um, I've been talking about how this is going to be five documentaries. Talk to me about the whole project. I know it starts this Monday. Uh, when are they going to be available to people? What's the best way to see this? And uh, how often are these things going to drop? Yeah, um, yeah, great question. So, yes, you're absolutely correct. It launches on Monday, February 13th. And uh, as you stated before, it's WTTW.com. Uh, slash firsthand, and it will be it will live forever. Um, um, so if somebody decides they want to uh, watch it a year, two or three from now, it will be there. Uh, but it's not just the five individual stories, which range between I don't know twenty to Nicholas. The story, which is amazing, uh, is is fifty minutes. <laughs> but it you know the one thing about Nicholas's story, which is very important. Uh, and it, it's different than the other four, is we got access to Kiwani Life Skills Center. Um, it is a new, uh, uh, innovative. It, you know, you, you can ask Nicholas about this, but he, he can give you more information. 
but it is a different type of prison. It's, it's affiliated with IDOC, of course, uh, in Kewanee, Illinois. But we gain um, unlimited access to film whatever we wanted. Well, I'm not going to say that. But we have unlimited <laughs> access uh, to film inside of Kewanee. And that's something that typically doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, we spent three days there. Uh, Teresa White was the, the, was the director of that story. We spent three days to um, seeing Nicholas in that environment, him working in the city of Kiwani, just how the whole program works. And then the third day was his release date. So we got him leaving Kiwani and being released and starting his new journey. Um, so in addition to those five stories, we're also doing uh, what we call talks. So it's like TED Talks. And we uh-huh. have four, actually five, um, experts um, that are, and actually one of them will be joining us for the next half an hour, um, but, you know, talking about a variety of issues as it relates to um, life after prison. In addition to that, we have, um, we have a discussion and resource guide. Um, we're uh, collaborating with Injustice Watch um, and WTTW News to do a text and visual, you know, like reporting. Mm-hmm. So it's not just the five individual documentary stories. There is a, an entire you know, group of, of uh, initiatives that are, are tied to this project. Um, Mario, we need to take a break. Mario Tharp is the producer of uh, this WTTW uh, firsthand Life After Prison. Nick, thank you for being here. Thank you for sharing your story. I wish you the best of luck. Nick is going to be leaving us now. And when we come back, um, Marlon Chamberlain, one of the people who gives one of those talks, is going to be joining Mario and me. We'll be right back after this. Podcasts of Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Just search WCPT 820. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT Willow Springs is powered by ComEd. See how ComEd is preparing for a clean energy future at ComEd.com slash clean energy. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. We're talking with some of the people involved in WTTW's first-hand Life After Prison. It launches this Monday, February 13th. You can find uh, all the documentaries and all the expert talks and some of the visuals they've put together if you go to WTTW.com slash firsthand. It will be live uh, February 13th. We are talking with Mario Tharp, who is one of the producers of the project, and now we're joined by Marlon Chamberlain, who is one of the people who gives one of those talks. Marlon, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Uh, tell us about the talk that is part of this firsthand project. By the way, for those of you just joining us, the whole project is about what reentry is like after you've been in prison for a while. How do you rebuild, restart your life? What are the programs out there that help and what are the obstacles you face? Marlon, what do you talk about in your talk? 
so my talk, my talk was titled Prison After Prison, which basically just talks about how when a person is released from incarceration, it's almost like you transfer from a set of physical bars with bob wires and correctional officers to now a set of invisible bars that is actual policy that creates sort of like this prison after prison impact for people that are formerly incarcerated. You know, that's very well put. And I have, in the time I've been doing this show, I have talked to people who were formerly incarcerated. And while they've all been incarcerated different places for different lengths of time, it really is a challenge to restart your life and not fall back into old bad habits. What is, what do you, when you give your talk, what is the one important point that you really want people to take away from it? So one of the the key points that I want people to take away from it is the question of when does the punishment end? And if we send people to prison to be rehabilitated and a person completes their term of incarceration, we should be setting up systems that help promote that person's success versus setting people up with the, the hundreds of permanent punishment laws that currently exist. We should be setting people up for success and removing these barriers so that people can really restart their life with, without running into all of these sort of legal sanctions that currently exist. Mario, we've talked, especially with Nick, about some of the barriers to gainful employment once you're out of prison. But it isn't just getting a job that's hard. Talk about more of the challenges formerly incarcerated people face. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are a number. Um, You know, a number of these we we cover in the documentary series. But housing. Um, Housing is 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 another issue that um, actually all of our subjects had to deal with at some point. Uh, in some cases, people are fortunate enough to stay with family members for a short time, but then that's not always the case. So we have to deal with housing, uh, of course, uh, with the employment, um, reconnecting with family. Uh, Marcelo De Jesus Velasquez is one of our other subjects, and he was trying to reconnect or build a bond with his son. Um, his son was an infant when he was locked up. So, you know, being gone for 20, 20 over 20 years, he didn't know a son. So it was tough for him to just build a, a relationship with this, this child um, or young adult now that he didn't, that he didn't know. Um, repairing, you know, family um, relationships outside of your kid. Um, you know, one thing that I found to be very interesting and didn't think about until I started working on this is technology. You know, Nicholas was one of them. Nicholas was gone for 24 years. There weren't smartphones around when he was locked up at 18. Uh, as he says in the story, he had a beeper. So just watching, and it, not just him, but even some of the others that we highlighted have been that were, uh, Marcelo was another one, just trying to figure out how to work a smartphone. Um, debit cards and the banking system is now different. Mm. Um, Nicholas 
and I don't want to give too much away because they're not going to want to watch the documentary. <laughs> uh, but I will say this is Nicholas also um, had to give away too much, but I'll say it. Uh, <laughs> his driver's license. I mean, he didn't know how to drive. So again, at 18, well, let me rephrase that. He knew how to drive, but he didn't have a license. So he had to prepare for the test. So these are all things that, you know, you typically don't think about, but that are all a very important part of the rebuilding process. Once you're released and how do you adapt to life? All of the things that are brand new that you haven't have never had the experience before. So those are just some of the things, you know, PTSD was another one. Um, Paul S., um, one of our other subjects, is a uh, convicted sex offender. And, of course, his list of challenges are different than Nicholas or Tawana or, or Kyle or Marcelo because, for instance, he can't, he can't, he has to stay away or X amount of feet away from schools, from parks. Um, so he has a whole set of issues, which when people watch the documentary, they'll get a chance to see. Um, uh-huh. yeah, there, it's much more than, uh, employment and jobs, although that's the number one, um, I think on everyone's list. Um, we have to take a real quick break here, but Marlon, when we come back, I'd like you, uh, I'd like to ask you a little bit of, I know you're involved in uh, something called fully free campaign. I want to ask you to talk about that. But first, we're going to take a real quick break. We are going to be back with Mario Tharp and Marlon Chamberlain, part of WTTW First Hand's Life After Prison. It is a series of uh, it's a multimedia series that will be available online starting Monday. We'll be back after this. Facebook. Message us. Instagram. Follow us. Twitter. Tweet us. They keep me connected. Let's get social on the socials. WCPT 820. WCPT 820. Chicago's progressive talk where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. This coming Monday, February 13th, write this down, WTTW.com slash firsthand. Uh, It is a multi-platform, multi-year initiative um, focusing on firsthand perspectives of people facing critical issues, this one that drops Monday is focusing on life after prison. What are the challenges and what can we do to make people who really want to change their lives have the wherewithal to actually do that? Right now, I'm talking with producer Mario Tharp and one of the experts who is quoted in the program, Marlon Chamberlain. Now, Marlon, I know that you are involved um, with a group called uh, the, the Fully Free Campaign. What is that? So the Fully Free campaign is a it's a multi-year statewide campaign um, to eliminate permanent punishment laws. And the Fully Free campaign defines permanent punishment laws as legal statutory barriers that deny or restrict rights and opportunities for people with arrest or conviction records. And basically what we did, because the more familiar term is collateral consequences or unintended consequences. However, we decided to call them by their proper name of permanent punishment laws because collateral implies that these laws were simply an afterthought or even accidental 
when in fact we know that they were intentionally drafted to target people with conviction records. And so the goal for us is to build a statewide coalition to introduce legislation to eliminate these hundreds of laws. Marlon, tell us your story. How do you come to this kind of work? So the the way that I sort of, uh, like the way that I come into this work, and it wasn't something that as a kid that I thought that I would ever be involved in. In fact, I wanted wanted to be a lawyer growing up. Uh, but unfortunately, in 2022, uh, 2002, I was sentenced to a federal, uh, 20-year federal prison sentence. And in 2010, with the passing of the Fair Sentencing Act, my sentence was reduced from 20 to 14 years. And the the Fair Sentencing Act simply reduced, or not simply, it reduced the ratio between crack and cocaine, which allowed for for the judge to resentence me um, to a lower sentence. And so even before I was released from prison, I made a decision that I wanted to connect to organizations that were introducing policy to sort of remove these barriers that people face um, that have been incarcerated. And so I was released on May 29th of 2012, and I was introduced to a good friend of mine now, Eddie Boganegra, who introduced me to community organizing. And that's how I sort of started in this work. Um, where I was a part of a coalition that was introducing policy to remove barriers for people after incarceration. Let's go back now uh, to the producer of Life After Prison, Mario Tharp. Mario, you said you knew you always wanted to do documentaries that made a difference, that um, affected people and maybe brought about change what kind of change would you like to see your work in this instance bring about? Um, you know, Joan, because I've, I've spent so much time um, talking to our five subjects and, you know, having lunch and um, late night phone calls. And um, what, what I would really like to see is for, you know, people that are, you know, returning returning citizens to be in a position where they can live, I guess what we would call the American dream. Um, this this project is just, you know, it, it was really therapeutic for me um, because I grew up on the west side of the city, and I saw firsthand um, in my neighborhood and even within my own family. And two uncles who were um, who were were unfortunately on and off of drugs, and I saw their struggle, and not just the two of them, but just guys that I may have gone to elementary school with, and I would see the revolving door that they would go through with trying to get themselves together, and for some folks it just didn't happen. Um, so I think working on this documentary, outside of it being just a very powerful subject that we need to discuss more about to try and find answers. It was also just very therapeutic for me. Um, So I would really like to see uh, for there to be a way where we can, you know, give people an opportunity, give people a chance and know that not everyone who served time um, is going to go back down the same path. There are reasons. Um, why people make those mistakes. 
And uh, so for me, I think, I think, you know, with this particular project, that's what I would like to see come out of it is, is, is finding a way to lower the recidivism rate by giving people, deserving people, an opportunity. Um, and I certainly think that our five subjects that we covered um, all deserve uh, an opportunity, another chance. And for, for instance, Tawana is a great example where she was able to do that. So she's our, 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 like our example of, of success, if you will, um, because she's been out for a number of years and she, she's made it. Uh, so I guess that, that, would be, that would be what I would like to see. Mario or Marlon, whoever wants to take this, have, um, have you, either of you, been in contact with any legislators, are there any laws that need to be changed or, or, or something that needs to be done legislatively to, to ease this situation? Whichever one of you wants to jo- jump in with that. Well, I'll let Marlon answer first, and then I'll take you back off of, off okay. of what he says. Yeah, I would say absolutely yes. Uh, as I said, we have done uh, a research project where we analyzed every statute in Illinois code to identify these hundreds of permanent punishment laws. And so we would definitely say yes. We have also been in conversation with several uh, legislators, and we actually introduced a bill that would remove language from the Illinois Probate Act to allow individuals with felony convictions to be the executor or administrator over in the state. Uh, I have a personal story. My father passed away last year and appointed me the executor over his estate. But because of my 20-year-old conviction, I was unable to carry out my father's last wishes because of this state law. Um, We're also looking at, and we've identified 16 statutes that restrict individuals' ability that have felony convictions to run for municipal office, to join local school councils or districts, or or to become a library trustee. So there are uh, hundreds of laws that we need to look at and really look at how can we eliminate these barriers and create opportunities for people after incarceration versus this punishment after punishment. Mario? Yeah, so um, basically what I want to do is give a tease. Um, So (laughs) we we, we discussed the... um, we discussed that in one of our in one of the five stories. I won't say which one because I want people to watch all five. Um, but th- there is one of our subjects who is affiliated with an organization that that works hard to um, they work with state legislators to change the law uh, or laws, I should say. And um, so that is part of one of the five stories. I have to watch all five to figure out which one. Hmm. Huh. You are taunting us. Um, guys down in Springfield, are there certain legislators who are more or receptive to your ideas? Somebody that you've been working with? I ask this in part because I talk to a lot of state reps and a lot of state senators, and I don't always know to ask them about something until somebody like you tells me, oh, yeah, you know, these are the people who are really helping us. And then next time I talk to them, I can say to them, Hey, you know, I hear this is an issue you're really involved with. Any any names you want to throw out? So I would definitely say from the Fully Free campaign, uh, 
uh, Rep. Lakeisha Collins, Senator Johnson, Rep. Ford, Rep. West. Um, there are a number, Rep. Ed Emmons. There are a lot of legislators that, that we've been in conversation uh, with about these permanent punishment laws and, and, and are really on board to help support us to eliminate these barriers. Then uh, that's definitely something that that I'm going to make note of. Um, one thing that I I, I don't know yet, uh, Mario. I know that this project goes on all year. Does the whole thing drop on Monday, or or will like once a month will there be a new documentary or a new addition to it? I'm a little confused on that point. Um, yeah. So the the excuse me the. Um the, the documentary uh, drops on on the 13th, and I am 99% sure, Joan, that the other uh, pieces will also drop on that day, on the 13th. Okay. Um, but I, I, that, 99%, that's pretty good. Yeah, it is. But I'll tell you, before we, uh, before we finish this interview, I'll make sure I have that answer. <laughs> okay. Well, we're in our last couple of minutes, so you better look fast. Um, just to let people know, uh, you go to find this online, uh, wttw.com slash firsthand. It's uh, some documentaries, all some short, some a little bit longer. Uh, there's going to be expert talks. There's going to be some visual uh, journalism. Injustice Watch has gotten involved with this. Um, some of the student reporting labs are involved in this. Um, there are going to be community conversations with community thought leaders. And there's going to be a discussion guide available if your organization would, uh, especially if it's a political organization, would like to um, extend to your members a chance to do a deeper dive into this. It uh, drops, the website goes live, uh, I believe... Correct me if I'm wrong, Mario. The website goes live not just the 13th, but at 7 p.m. Is that correct? Right. So yeah, we have a an event, a kickoff event at. Oh yeah, that's the that's where you're going to be talked about on Chicago tonight. That's correct. Um, well, yes. So I mean, it's it's uh, it's an event uh, that's at WTTW, and that is that starts at uh, six o'clock. So yes, at seven it will go. It will go live on the website. That is correct. Um, you know, I think it's really interesting. It would be easy to do something like this and maybe focus on people who have lesser offenses. You know, you know, somebody who got in trouble because of drugs. We seem to have more room in our hearts to forgive those people. But you tackle. Some difficult stories, you know, um, Nick, who was incarcerated because as a teenager, he killed someone, somebody else uh, who was incarcerated as a sexual offender. And I, I really have to hand it to you because those are the ones that those are the cases that if you don't really dig into who they are and what they've been through, it's really hard to think that you want to extend that person some kindness or some sympathy were you surprised by these stories, Mario? Absolutely. I'll answer that. But yes, um, I, my 99% changes to 100%. So yes, everything does drop on the 13th. Okay. The 13th. 
Um, and when you, when you met some of these people, particularly the ones with difficult stories, were you surprised that by the by the fact that you felt empathy for them? No, I wasn't. I wasn't surprised um, because again, I, I've 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 seen some of the uh, you know th- some of the stories. Those stories are not new to me because of oh shoot. Uh, Mario, I'm sorry. I have to cut you off. I got so involved in this discussion. I'm a professional radio host. We're running out of time. We're almost the computer's going to cut us off. Mario, thank you for doing this project. And thank you for talking to us, Marlon. Thank you, Chamberlain, for being here. And uh, thanks to Nick Creighton. Uh, February 13th. Watch for it. Um, I get too involved sometimes, Mario. I uh, lose track of time, which is not a good thing when you're a radio host. Clearly, it's a topic that people who listen to this station would care about. Uh, That's going to do it for me. Driving at Home with Patty Vasquez is up next. I'll see you tomorrow at 2 p.m. Have a great evening. Good night.